0: don't know that we sing much as beautiful or as clear about what the gospel is, than because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's not only well written, that's good theology. I'm excited about singing stuff like that. Uh, if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, uh, if you don't, there are some back there in the table there in the back of the sanctuary. We're in Matthew 28. Matthew 28, and we'll pick up around verse 16. It's a passage that's commonly known as the Great Commission, and it falls in the middle of what we're calling our mission month. Uh, We have an opportunity at the end of the month. The last Sunday in June, a visitor uh, missionary that we support named Sasha Sutsarov, will be with us that Sunday. Sasha's a former KGB agent who now is the director of the Moscow Evangelical Christian Seminary. Incredible figure, doing lots of work training pastors in Russia to share the gospel all over what is geographically the largest country in the world. So he'll be here the last Sunday in June, and then the first Sunday in July, Al nucharoni and his wife Billy, uh, they'll be visiting with us. Al is the pastor of Jerusalem Baptist Church, um, which sounds like it could be anywhere, but it's actually the Jerusalem, like Israel Jerusalem. Baptist Church uh, and uh, does an incredible uh, number of things in sports ministry. Um, In fact, uh, he's linked up with uh, Robert Kraft, who's the owner of the Patriots, to help run football clinics uh, in and around Israel. Fascinating guy. Really, really excited for them to be here. And we decided in light of their back-to-back week visits that we were going to spend the entirety of the month of June talking about what is the mission of the church? What have we been called to do? Last week, we talked about the motive behind our mission, loving the people around us, loving our neighbor as well. And this week we're talking about mission in the New Testament. To put some perspective on why we're doing what we're doing, why we're talking about this, we need to know that there are approximately 7.5 billion people on the globe, and that as of the end of 2018, the statistics that have been put out by A consensus of evangelical scholarship, more than 3.1 billion people have never heard the name Jesus. 75.9% of all missionaries who are active around the world are ministering to the world that has already heard about Jesus. Another 23.7% work with those who may have heard the name of Jesus but aren't evangelized, aren't Christians themselves. Only 0.037% of all missionaries sent out in the last 50 years have been sent specifically to minister to people who have never heard of Jesus before. 0.037%. There are 5,626 unreached people groups on the planet. There is one missionary for every 200,000 Hindus, one missionary for every 260,000 Buddhists, and one missionary for every 405,000 Muslims. 0.1% of all Christian income goes to missions to unreached people groups. 0.1%. I had a conversation a couple of years ago, a large church here in the Twin Counties area, over a 1,000 people, has a massive budget verging right there on $2 million a year. They had $1,500 scheduled in their budget for missions. Now think about that a $2 million budget, $1,500 a year scheduled for missions, and at their annual fiscal changeover, they took it out, and the reasoning was, we just can't afford it anymore. $2 million, 0.1% of all Christian income goes to missions to unreached people groups. Read passages like this one in 1 Timothy. First of all, Paul says to his young protege, Timothy, Then I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. We reckon with what God wants. Who God loves, that he wants the entire world to know that Jesus Christ has come to bear our sins and to give us his righteousness that we might be reconciled with the holy God forever. And so we come to months like this one and think about our role in what God has called us to do. And I don't know that there's a passage in the entire Bible that is as clear about what we've been called to do as Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. We're going to ask three questions today, and it's the same thing that's on the notes. They're by the front door when you came in. Three points. Uh, What have Christians been called to do? Question number one. What have Christians been called to do? Number two, what does that say about who God is? What does that say about his character and his nature? And finally, we ask the question, what does that mean for us? So those are the three questions. What does the New Testament say about all this mission stuff? What does that say then about who God is as he reveals himself through the Bible? And finally, what does that mean for us? The first question, what has God taught us about mission in the New Testament? And if there's a big idea that holds this whole thing together, it's something like this. God has equipped his people to take the message of Jesus everywhere. God has equipped his people to take the message of Jesus everywhere. We start in Matthew 8, excuse me, 28, verse 16. And this is the passage that we read this morning. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. This is immediately after the resurrection. Jesus has lived for more than three decades. He's taught publicly now for three years. He's gathered disciples. He's been crucified. He's been buried. He's been raised again. And right before he ascends to heaven, he gathers the remaining disciples together, and he says this, starting in verse 17, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Of course, a couple of weeks ago, right after Easter, we talked about Thomas, who doubted, who had to see in Jesus' hands inside the actual marks of the crucifixion. And Jesus came and said to them, predicated now on his resurrection. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. I am the authoritative one, fully man and fully God, imbued with the power that only comes from having been raised from the dead. And with that authority, here's what I'm calling you to do. Verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, there are some interesting things happening here. Uh, You know, I I say this occasionally. I went to college and seminary and learned the languages that the Bible was originally written in. Uh, The Old Testament was written mostly in Hebrew. The New Testament was written mostly in Greek. And occasionally, I love nerding out and saying some mundane fact about the original languages. I enjoy that. I had a great Greek professor in college who said that uh, Greek is like underwear. You need it for support, but nobody ever needs to see it. Uh, But I'm going to actually show you just a little weird thing happening here grammatically in Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. It says, Go therefore and make disciples. Here's what's interesting about what happens right there in the Greek language grammatically. There's only one Grammatical imperative in that verse. Now, in English, it reads like a whole bunch of commands right in a row, but there's one main grammatical imperative there, and it's make disciples. Your job, Jesus says, having risen from the dead, all authority invested in him, your job, make disciples. That's what you do. When we say we are about proclaiming God's glory and grace, what we're saying is we are participating in that job to make disciples. That's why you're here. You glorify God and you are helping other people to see the beauty and the grace in glorifying him as well. Missions Month is predicated on that idea. Make disciples. And then, around that imperative are three participles. Now, uh, we've got a number of kids in the room, right? And this is what you're saying. I know what's going on in your heads right now. Dude, I just got out of school. Like two weeks ago Do we really have to talk about grammar over the? No this is it I promise We are nearing the end of our Grammar lesson for the morning But what does it mean to make disciples Jesus tells us there are three things here Three participles that float around that imperative That tell us more about what it means To make disciples the first is go If you want to make disciples you must go Verse 18 go therefore and make disciples Of who All nations You know what all means in Greek all. All nations. All of them. Go make disciples of all the nations. There's nobody who gets crossed off the list. There's nobody too far away. There's nobody who lives in the valley too low or the mountain too high. Or the, Everybody. You make disciples of all nations. Go. That's that first participle there. The second is baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You're going to baptize them. You're going to teach them what it means to identify with Jesus in his death and resurrection. That's what we do when we baptize somebody. Uh, grace. Grace Lee got baptized on Easter morning just a few weeks ago, right? And we brought grace, and we actually baptize here, like, in physical water. We immerse people in the water, and it's a great symbol because what it does with water is it shows us symbolically what Jesus has done by his death and resurrection. We Buried grace in the water very briefly, right? Her nose just barely got under the water, and then we brought her back up out of the water. It's like Jesus being buried in the earth and then raised back to new life. In fact, when we bring people out of the water, that's exactly what we say. Identifying with Jesus, like Romans chapter 6, you are dead to your sin and raised to walk, very specific language, quoting from Romans 6 raised to walk in the newness of life. You are identifying with who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, and that's what Jesus says. If you want to make disciples, you've got to go to them and you've got to teach them what it means to identify with me. I was dead and rose back again, so you're going to die to who you were and raise up to new life in me why Paul can say in Galatians chapter 20 it's no longer I who live but Christ lives in me I'm no longer who I was I'm a new creation he says to the Corinthians so if you want to make disciples number one go number two baptize them and uh, occasionally we'll get a Jehovah's Witness at our door and we ask them if they believe in the Trinity and like I'm nice enough to them I just really rue the day when my wife has enough time to talk to the poor Jehovah's Witnesses. Because I'm not, it's like a dog with a bone. I just, it's, it's just rough. I feel actual pity for the old Jehovah's Witnesses who come to the door. Where in the Bible does it ever say that God is triune, that the Trinity exists? Well, you can point them to passages just like this one. How will we baptize them? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. No, oh, that's a, whole other sermon. We'll come back to that on another Sunday. But there we go. Number one, go. Number two, baptize them. Number three, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You're going to go to them. You're going to tell them about who I am and what I've done, not least of which is, I was dead, killed for their sins, and rose back to new life. And they're going to identify with me by being baptized in that. And now, now that they are a part of this community of people who identify with me, Jesus says, the work's not over. It's not like they have suddenly arrived and everything is done. Now you're going to teach them all that I have commanded you. You're going to instruct them in what it means to live the Christian life. So the core imperative there, make disciples. That's why you're here. That's why you draw breath on this planet. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that's why he allowed you to get up this morning. It's why your heart is beating right now. You have been called to make disciples. And you're going to make disciples by going. You're going to get up out of where you are and go find people who don't worship Jesus and tell them about the hope that we have exclusively through him. When they respond in faith, you're going to baptize them. You're going to allow them publicly to announce, I am identifying with him. And from that day onward, you're going to teach them until God brings them home. All Jesus has commanded us. This is, in a nutshell, what it means to make disciples. Uh, I love David Platt. David Platt's been a great guy for evangelicalism for many years now. In his church, every Sunday when they leave, they recite together the Great Commission so that they know when they walk out those doors what it is that they have been called to do. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I commanded you. And then what I love here, connected to that, verse, end of 20, right? And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you now keep your finger there and I want you to turn a few pages over to Acts chapter 1 Matthew, Mark, Luke, John those are the four gospels and the fifth book of the New Testament is Acts Acts chapter 1 this is like the other part of the Great Commission it's like Matthew has recorded a piece of it and so here Luke has recorded a little piece of it and again this is right before Jesus ascends into heaven And he says in verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Not your job. Figuring out all the details about the timing of the kingdom, not why you're here. But verse 8, let me explain to you in my now resurrected authority, let me explain to you why you are here. What you do need to know. The piece of information that I'm going to and still within you. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. Now, fascinating, a couple of things happen there. Uh, this Sunday in the church calendar, and we're not liturgical here at Rocky Mount Bible Church, though I have no problem with churches that are, This Sunday is Pentecost Sunday. It's the Sunday that we reflect back historically on the day in which the Lord gave the Holy Spirit to the church. There in Acts chapter 2. And this is promised here in Acts chapter 1. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. We're celebrating that very thing today. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will receive power. Now, just as Jesus promised in Matthew 28 that he would be with them always, So now here's the proof that God is with them always. That in Acts chapter 1, Jesus makes the promise and the Spirit will come upon you. The same Spirit we just read is a member of the Godhead. God is with you. Father, Son, and Spirit. You're not alone. You're not working alone. And the same Spirit that has indwelled the apostles 2,000 years ago has indwelled every believer who follows Jesus Christ. The exact same spirit in them is the same spirit in you. Jesus' presence is with you. His spirit in your life. The spirit who has empowered you to do the work that He's called you to do. Now, it's interesting. Great Commission. Jesus says, and you'll be my witnesses, right? And you will testify about the entire world. All the nations, he says. Here in Acts 1 8, he lays that out geographically. I'm not a geographer. But it's interesting how that works, right? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Here is the city. This is the capital of the nation of Israel. It's the city that they're in right now. It's the city where Jesus was crucified. It's the city where Jesus was buried. It's the city where Jesus rose again from the dead. It's the city to which Jesus will return and rule in power for a thousand years. This is the city. He says, you're going to start here right where you are. And then you're going to go to Judea and Samaria, which are these two geographical regions right around Jerusalem. And after you get done there, you're going to go to the utter ends of the earth. You never get to stop. Hit a river, hit a valley, hit a mountain, hit an ocean, whatever it is, don't let it stop you to the very ends of the earth. Jesus says, go make disciples. Teach them and baptize them. And you're going to be able to do all that because my spirit is going to be within you to empower you to do it. I'm going to be with you the entire way. And you know what happened? Those apostles went out and did that very thing. Um, I want you to look at Jude chapter 1. I know we're doing a lot of flipping. We'll calm down with that here in just a minute. Jude is near the end of the New Testament. Jude is the second to last book and Jude only has one chapter so you know we made this challenge at the beginning of the year that we would read books of the Bible and we asked you to think about how many books of the Bible you might read and some of you, total suckers, said I'm going to read Psalms this year, right, and it's 150 chapters when you could have said I'm going to read Jude like over and over and over and over again that's how you would pad your stats there if you were interested in that sort of thing reading Jude would be like you know, bunting every time he got up to the plate. Here we are, Jude, I say chapter one, Jude, chapter, right? That's all we got. Verse one, Jude, who's a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Verse three, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Why does Jude do what he does? Because he is convinced that the message that has been handed down to him must be imparted to the new believers that they might send it around the world. Last time I'm going to ask you to turn somewhere. Go ahead and turn to, just briefly, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. It's one of the last letters that Paul ever writes. It may be the very last thing that Paul ever writes. And he's writing to Timothy, this young guy that he's been mentoring here, uh, for years and years now. And this is what he says. Uh, Starting in verse 3, 2 Timothy 4, 3. Now the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering. Do the work of an evangelist, Fulfill your ministry. In his parting words to the guy that he's been training for years, what does Paul say that Timothy is to be about? Do the work of an evangelist. Uh, uh, the word evangelism, right, is predicated on this word uh, euangelion. It's the good news. The verb, right? to proclaim good news. That's what we do here. We proclaim good news. Paul says to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Now I'm going to cheat here for a second. And I'm going to say, now here's what Paul isn't saying. Look, you can fill entire sermons with what stuff uh, people aren't saying. Okay? But there's an important observation here. Paul does not say, Timothy I want you to take one of those spiritual gift inventories and discover whether or not according to the rubric that's laid out there you are gifted as an evangelist and and if you score high enough on the spiritual gifts inventory, high enough on that spectrum then you should consider doing some work in evangelism Paul doesn't engage Timothy about where Timothy thinks he's gifted he gives him the command flatly do the work of an evangelist I can't tell you how many believers that I've met who have used an excuse something like this you know evangelism yeah it's important I guess but it's not really my thing look look at me right right here uh, did Jesus die for your sin right? did he rise again from the dead do you follow him then evangelism is your thing it's what you've been called to do i watched a guy on tv a couple of months ago and he was preaching about evangelism and he had all of his deacons gather around the room and they had these giant five gallon buckets and they were full of uh, lead fishing weights and like in reverse offering style he had them walk down the aisles and pass down all of these handfuls of lead fishing weights and he said, hey, I want you, everybody take one of these lead fishing weights, put it in your pocket, ladies, stick one in your purse, wherever you've got to keep it, keep it in your truck, there you go. The number one reason I hear people say they don't share the gospel is because they don't feel lead. So now you can stick your hand in your pocket and you feel lead. <laughs> you cannot use your perceived lack of gifting and evangelism as a rationalization to disobey the Great Commission. If you follow Jesus... You are a disciple maker. Maybe you're a good one or maybe you're a bad one, but that doesn't change the fact that that's what you've been called to do. That is exactly what Paul is saying to Timothy right here in 2 Timothy chapter four. You have been wired. This is your job. You have been indwelled by the spirit who is empowering you to that very end. And we reckon with the fact that though we are not apostles ourselves, we have the same spirit that those apostles had. There is no way that we can justify not doing what we've been called to do. Now, what does that say about who God is? First, God calls his people to go. God calls his people to go. Going is a key part of obedience to the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. Go to all the nations on the earth. Go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the very ends of the whole deal go and go is exactly what they did we know that Jesus ascended by the way that we reckon the Jewish calendar uh, either in AD 30 or AD 33 by AD 50 there were already riots in Rome hundreds of miles away the capital of the Roman Empire riots in Rome over following Jesus By AD 65, the emperor of Rome had already established a program of persecution targeting specifically Christians. By the end of the century, there was no major city within a thousand miles of Jerusalem that had not had a missionary tell them about who Jesus was. Jesus told them to go, and they went. It is embarrassing. That there are then more than 5,000 people groups on the planet to which, over the last two millennia, we have not yet gone. It is embarrassing that so little of how we spend our money in the church goes to reaching those people. It is embarrassing that we have not invested more, even here at Rocky Mount Bible Church, where I think we take missions pretty seriously, not just financially, but theologically and practically that there are still hundreds of thousands of people who are served by so few who claim the name of Jesus Christ. You need to reckon this morning, right now, and I say this looking in the eyes of these like, young men and, and young women, and if you're playing with your coloring sheet or whatever it is that you're doing, or you're you know, playing Fortnite on your phone, whatever, I need you to... It may be that you exist on this planet because God has put you here and will train you and send you to the ends of the earth. That may be why you're here. And nothing would make my heart happier than for one of you to come to me and say, I recognize now, this is what God has called me to do. I'm going to get trained and I'm going to go. It's not just for them. You may be in your 30s, or 40s, or 50s, or beyond. And it may be right now that God says, now, now, for all these years, been doing what I called you to do, but now the calling has changed. Now I want you to go. What a better way to retire than to spend your life puttering around the garage than instead to say, I have been invested in for so many decades. I'm going to pour myself out somewhere on this planet for Jesus Christ. Going is essential. Secondly, God equips his people with his presence and his empowerment. God equips his people. He gives them what they need to do, what they need in order to do what they have been called to do. God equips them. He empowers them. <coughs> I absolutely love this. Uh, When I was in seminary, I bought a bookcase. Because this is like the happy pleasure of going to grad school. You start buying more books than you have room for. We lived in Dallas, and they had an Ikea, uh, just a little bit north of Dallas. And so some buddies and I went in my 92 Chevy Blazer, and I bought a bookcase. And uh, we tore, because, you know, uh, like how many grad students does it take to put together an Ikea bookcase? Uh, More than we had. So we tear the box open, and I can't find all the pieces, And everything's like in Swedish or whatever Ikea writes their stuff in. And so uh, we decide, all right, uh, well, here we go. We're just going to figure it out. Right? And nobody slowed down to observe all the parts. We just put it together. And uh, like Frankenstein makes a person by taking the parts. And this is the bookcase that we designed. I use that phrase occasionally, ugliest sin. Man, that was the ugliest bookcase that ever. And we got almost done. And I'm cleaning up the trash now. And and there's a little box. And on that box, it has the number one. And on the big box that we had just torn apart was the number two. And you open box number one, and in the top is instructions read this before opening box number two. And you know, inside were all the screws we were missing. And a detailed uh, set of instructions for how to assemble this thing, and the exact little Allen wrench we needed to make it go together. (laughs) IKEA had given me exactly what I needed to do what I needed to do. So it is with Jesus Christ; He has given you His Spirit. You have within you what you need to do, what you have been called to do. God requires thirdly that the message we share to be Christ centered. What do we do? We tell them about Jesus. He says, I resolve that I will do this. I will boast only in the cross of Jesus Christ and what it is that he has done. I will tell them about Jesus. The other side of that coin, you have what you need to do what you have been called to do is this. Just tell them about Jesus. We've got people in the room, I'm sure, and I'm not basing this on any specific conversation, but I can tell you I've heard this As long as I've been in ministry, I'm sure I will until I'm dead. Well, uh, I know that we collectively need to be talking about Jesus, but I don't know that I need to be talking about Jesus because I didn't go to Bible college and I didn't go to seminary. Or maybe I did go to seminary, but I just got by with D's, Jason Eman. And so because of that, uh, I'm going to leave that work to somebody else, somebody more qualified, somebody more experienced, somebody more educated, not my job. I don't know what to do. Let me tell you, Paul says, Extraordinarily, it's not that hard. You tell them about Jesus. Tell them that Jesus died for your sins. Tell them that Jesus resurrected, that you might have new life. Tell them that you can spend eternity with a holy God because of what he has done for you. And tell them that life will be sometimes difficult, but altogether better if you will dedicate yourselves in faith to following him. Righteousness is right, and righteousness works tell them that show them that model that for them let them see in you the joy and the peace and the hope that comes from following jesus you don't need a phd to do that you don't need 50 years experience to do that you just got to say i know jesus changed me and he can change you too because of what he's done at calvary you can do that you can do that Jesus has given you what you need to do that. He's given you the Spirit. And the Spirit will embolden you. And the Spirit will encourage you to do that very thing. Finally, what does this mean for you? It means you should go. Go and share the gospel. Resist the temptation of reinforcing a Christian subculture. (coughs) Roughly a hundred years ago, a dramatic event happened in the history of Christendom. Increasingly, places where young men and women studied Christian theology became more and more liberal. And those liberal universities and seminaries started putting out pastors who were more and more liberal. And there was a divide in the church. And instead of staying and fighting aggressively for the souls of those churches and those universities, instead, Christians, many of them, receded into the background of culture and started not a countercultural movement, but a subcultural movement. Instead of taking the gospel to all nations, we developed a real knack for hiding from all of the nations. Uh, we're no longer going to engage the gospel in public schools, we're going to start our own schools. Uh, we're no longer going to send our kids to camp. We're going to start our own Christian camps, right? That'll be maybe better for us. We're going to start our own colleges. We're going to start our own radio stations. We're going to found our own bookstores. There are churches that we uh, knew about in Dallas, big enough uh, churches where, if you were a member, they had their own dental offices. They had their own grocery stores. They had their own auto mechanics. If you wanted to, you could spend the entirety of your life only with other believers, all built on the pretense of, well, I'm just trying to remain holy. I'm just trying to be separate, come out from among them and be separate. That's perverse. If you look at our doctrinal statement, we have as a lingering uh, memento from those fundamentalist years a doctrine of separation. Now look, if Trinitarianism, that great doctrine is our heart, And Christology, the study of who Jesus is and what he's done is our soul. And soteriology, the doctrine of salvation is our mind. In my thinking, the doctrine of separation is something like an appendix, perfectly benign, unless it becomes inflamed and corrupted in some way, in which you have to cut it out and throw it away people have used over the last century the idea of separation for holiness's sake to give them a reason to disobey the Great Commission. Are we called to be holy? Of course we are. But that does not give you a pass for disassociating from your neighbors and your city and your community and your world. We are to be countercultural, not subcultural. Because part of what it means to fulfill the Great Commission is to go. Now, I'll tell you honestly, if I'm being blunt with you, I do not believe the greatest reason why we don't go more is theological. I think it's practical. This is my life, right? Uh, I'm a pastor, which means uh, I'm here working in the office or hanging out with you people an awful lot, right? And that's a good thing. I like most of you. (laughs) Then I go uh, home, try to spend time with my wife and kids. Uh, My wife loves Jesus. I get a lot of Jesus at home. We send our kids to a little Christian school, right? Right? So they got Christian teachers and they learn Bible verses. And, uh, we get a little time, we go to Raleigh, see my in-laws. They follow Jesus. My parents are moving to town here in the next month or so. They follow Jesus. I'm just around Jesus people an awful lot. And it is real easy for me to intellectually say, yeah, I am all about going. And then to spend all all of my time with other believers it's hard I know it's hard for people in this room because I know for example we got a lot of moms in here who homeschool and that is exhausting work right because you are with some of your little angels and some of your little pagans all day long and you got to keep them alive and you got to feed them and you got to teach them something on top of all of that and it's hard to get out we got a handful of guys in here who work positive action, right? Everyone who works at positive action, a believer. Is that right? That makes that more challenging. John, Mark, work at a, a doctor's office. You know what the all those doctors haven't come, I've been and seen, I don't know, half a dozen of them. They all pray for me. And I walk in this Christian music playing over there. It makes it more challenging, I would think, to do the going if I'm around believers all day long. And some of you I know, you go to your office. Or you visit the same clients every couple of days or you do whatever, you see the same half dozen people that you've seen for 20 years. And maybe you've had those conversations about faith and maybe you haven't. But the hardest part of the going for most evangelical Christians I know is that they spend time, almost all of it, with a group of people who already know about Jesus. There is no way the disciples could have done what they did in the first century if they had only spent time with each other. So we have here, as a philosophy of ministry, that, and it's a philosophical point that we embrace here, that we have Sunday school, that we have our worship service on the Sunday morning, and that we have small groups that meet on occasion. Once in a while, we might get together and read a book together or hang out and have fun. I love that stuff. It's good for the church to spend time together when i was a kid we went to a little church for a while and it was sunday morning sunday night wednesday night the men had something saturday morning tuesday night the women got together youth group met right and you could spend five or six days a week at church i don't want you here you have to leave here you can't spend all your time together because even though that is wonderful and it's safe and it's encouraging you have to get out As a philosophy of ministry, we intentionally under-program here. We do less programming here than some other churches do because it is impossible for you to love your neighbors and to take the gospel to the ends of the earth if you are always in this room. And we make opportunities to share the gospel here. Easter and Christmas, we do big stuff. We invite people here. VBS, we're inviting kids here. We have opportunities like at United Community Ministries and the Pregnancy Care Center, and coming up in a couple of months, Peacemakers. And we're going to go to places as a church, together, all of us, and do these cool things, telling people about Jesus. But we cannot do corporately what you can do individually. God has called you. You are not dependent on me to schedule something for you so that you can fulfill the Great Commission. Go. Go and do the work. And I'll tell you, creatively engaging our community, finding a way to get out, is going to be the hardest application of all of this. Some of your kids play sports. That is, they are taking you to a place where you're going to have an opportunity to tell people about Jesus. Some of you love spending time at the library or at the gym, at the Y, at Planet Fitness, where I guarantee you'll see me at least every other month, promised, right? Go, find a place, get creative. Get down on your hands and knees and pray, Jesus, I know, I know that there is no hope apart from you, that without your death and resurrection, I am still lost in my sin and have no hope for reconciling to God. I know that is true. And because I know that is true, not only for me, but for every other person on the planet, Lord, help me find a place. Help me find a people. And help me go. You gotta go. Finally, talking about Jesus isn't a last-ditch strategy for those who run out of answers. The gospel begins and ends with who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Talk about Jesus. Talk about Jesus. You may not have all the answers. It may be uncomfortable. They may ask you questions that you don't know the answer to, and that's all right. You just keep talking about Jesus. God has equipped his people to take the message of Jesus everywhere. We need a sense of urgency about that. A couple of weeks ago, where I grew up in Ohio, they had a number of tornadoes. I think there were 14 total ravaged mile after mile after mile of farmland and houses and communities and neighborhoods. And one of the most spectacular things I've ever seen happen in the middle of all that mess going on, there was a weatherman named Jamie Simpson. I grew up watching Jamie Simpson tell us about the weather. Jamie Simpson came on the TV and they had to stop showing The Bachelorette so that he could tell everybody about what was going on. And because they accept live tweets into the newsroom as he's telling everybody about he got an overwhelming number of live tweets coming at him there in the office as he's warning people about life and death F3 tornadoes 180 miles an hour ripping through killed people right maimed dozens Uh, you just need to shut up and put the bachelorette back on over and over and over and over and he absolutely lost it on air Went off. Google it. Go home this afternoon. It's going to make your afternoon, right? There's nothing as entertaining as going to be on TV today as watching Jamie Simpson just rip people a new one there on the night when The Bachelorette was on. and, And this is what he's saying it's a show. It's just a show. But there are life and death issues right now and what you may learn from watching this may save your life. And I wonder if too much of what we've done in reading our New Testaments has been saying, yes, it's important, yes, I know it's good, but get me back to the show. 3.14 billion people have never heard, but we're going to go. Father, because you have given us your spirit, who empowers us for the task, we know that we are ready. Change our hearts. Send us out joyfully and ready. In Jesus' name, to tell everyone about him. Amen.